Let's pray as we uh, open the word once again together. Father in heaven, it is no accident that we are here gathered in this place today to bring our worship to you, to exalt you, to magnify your name, to marvel at you, your goodness, your faithfulness, your love and mercy. Lord, we are so blessed and privileged as your people to have you as our God. And this morning, as we open your authoritative word, uh, which still has efficacy, uh, Lord, we pray that your spirit would come and wield that word, however is your pleasure, whether to uh, perhaps disturb the comfortable or comfort the disturbed, whatever it is, Lord, that you will, we pray, do it. And may we not be the same as we move out of this place later, but changed by our encounter with you. So we pray your presence and your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us have no doubt seen pictures like the ones that are on the screen there of chameleons. Do you like chameleons? Chameleons who can somewhat mysteriously take on the color scheme of their environment. Uh, Maybe some of us have actually seen chameleons in person, depending on where we grew up. I grew up in northern Alberta, so I didn't get a lot of opportunity to see a a live chameleon. But these animals have always fascinated with me, fascinated me, with their ability, in many cases, to image the stone that they are sitting on, or the leaves that surround them. And the scientists that study these animals are really only beginning now to understand how and why this color change actually happens. Well, God in his word tells us that human beings, that's you and I, each of us has a chameleon-like tendency to image, to look like, whatever it is that we worship. To image or look like whatever it is that we worship. So if we are worshiping the true and living God, we come to look like him, to image him, to take on many of his glorious characteristics. But if we are worshiping lifeless and spiritually bankrupt idols, we begin to take on their unhealthy characteristics. And probably one of the best places in Scripture to see this, to see how in worshiping lifeless idols we come in almost chameleon-like fashion, we come to resemble those lifeless idols with our own spiritual lifelessness. The best place maybe to see this is in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. In these verses, the psalmist is describing idols. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. So, idols are altogether mute. They have eyes, but do not see. Idols are mute, and they are blind. They have ears, but do not hear. Idols are mute, blind, and deaf. Noses, but do not smell. 
kind of like my post-COVID notes. So idols have olfactory issues also. They can't smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, so idols are also in a state of permanent paralysis. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Idols are altogether silent. And then in verse 8, we get the shocker when the psalmist declares, listen, those who make idols become like them. See that? They become like them. So do all who trust in them. So if you are an idolater, that is, if you are a person who has installed something other than God as the ultimate of your life, whether self or career or money or possessions, whatever the idol is, you will, like a chameleon, take on the characteristics of your idol. You will become as spiritually mute blind, deaf, and paralyzed as your particular idol is. Did you notice in that section of Psalm 115 how many sensory faculties, sensory faculties are affected by idol worship? Our spiritual seeing, our spiritual hearing, our spiritual smelling and feeling are all drastically affected. With idolatry, our spiritual senses, friends, get calloused. They get devastated. They get numbed out. And so idolatry then is, really, we could put it this way, idolatry is self-harm. Idolatry is self-harm. The nation of Israel, back in the 8th century BC, had been involved in copious amounts of idol worship. And they'd been doing this for a long, long time. The people had gone way outside of their lane, and they had crafted idols, and they had been trusting in those idols. The people had willfully, willfully turned away from the God who had redeemed them, from the God who loved them, from the God who had provided for them. They had turned away from him to their lifeless idols. And so the living God interrupted. He interrupted their long-standing idolatry through his prophet Isaiah. In the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, God announced to the people that now, after all this time, his judgment had arrived. And over the course of those first five chapters of Isaiah, God names their idolatry as a major reason for that judgment. In chapter 2, verse 8, God says of his people, their land is what? Filled, filled with idols. They bow down, not to me, to Yahweh, but to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. 
And then again in verses 18 and verse 20 of that same chapter, their idolatry is mentioned twice more. Well, when we get to Isaiah chapter, chapter 6, after those first five chapters, we get the official commissioning of Isaiah the prophet, and, and it's very striking, friends, it's very striking how God describes to Isaiah the nature of Isaiah's prophetic mission. So in the moment when Isaiah responds to God's call, here I am, God then says to Isaiah, uh, this is Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, God says, go and say to this people, say to this idolatrous people, listen to what he says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. What God is commissioning his newly minted prophet Isaiah to do here is something very remarkable, and essentially it's this. God is saying, Isaiah, your role as my prophet is to go say to this idolatrous people of mine, listen, that the spiritual lifelessness of the idols that they have chosen will now become their own spiritual lifelessness, and I will make it so. The deaf ears and the blind eyes of their lifeless idols will now become their own spiritually deaf ears and spiritually blind eyes. God is saying, in the spiritual sense, my idolatrous people will look like and they will increasingly become like their dead idols. They wanted their idols. They chose their idols. They crafted their idols. They worshiped their idols. Now they themselves will resemble their chosen idols, spiritually dull and unable to comprehend and in a most dangerous condition of spiritual deterioration. As Greg Beale puts it, Quote, he says, God was going to make them as spiritually insensitive, as spiritually inanimate and lifeless, lifeless as their idols. That's the judgment here in this text. Now, friends, we have to notice very well, please notice, that here God is not being unjust. God is not being cruel or capricious toward his people. Again, listen, people of God. It was his people who had willfully chosen their path of rejecting him, their path of crafting their idols, their own, their own spiritual callousness, 
and their own rebellion and their own lack of repentance had led them to this point where now God came and was announcing this judgment on them that their own spiritual callousness that they had chosen for themselves would now be increased. It's a hard text, isn't it? And with that hard text in our minds, we go to another hard text. Journey with me now several centuries after the time of Isaiah to the time of Jesus Christ when he walked the earth. One day, Jesus was in a boat and a great crowd of people was gathered there in front of him on the beach. And Jesus spoke to them in that moment, thank you, the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower. Many of us know this parable. In the parable of the sower, the seed, the word of the kingdom, is broadcast, right? Broadcast onto various soil types, onto various people with a variety of different results. Right after Jesus finished that parable, speaking that parable, he said, what did he say in Matthew 13, 9? He who has, what, ears, let him hear. I heard that. (laughs) He who has ears, let him hear. Which is an indication, is it not, that not everybody has the necessary spiritual ears to hear and heed the parable of the sower. Some do, but the spiritual ears of others are dulled and deaf. And We wonder here, could it be that misplaced worship or the worship of deaf idols, could it be that the worship of deaf idols was playing a part in the deafness of some who were gathered there that day to hear the parable of the sower. Well, right after Jesus said this thing about ears and hearing, his disciples approached him. Uh, Presumably, they approached him in a more private moment. And they said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you speak to them in parables? Now, let's notice Two words here, two words. The first word to notice is that word, parable. So over the next few months, actually, of preaching time, we are going to be immersed in many of Jesus' parables. In the day when Jesus walked the earth, the use of parables, the use of these illustrative, metaphorical, powerful teaching stories was actually a very common thing amongst the the Jewish rabbis. Rabbis used parables all the time. And so the disciples aren't taken aback by the very fact, by the very fact that Jesus is using parables as if parables were a brand new thing. What the disciples seem to be wondering about here is this. Why, Jesus, why employ this particular form of teaching to bring your message across? Why why use this particular 
form. We know it's a popular form amongst you rabbis, this form of parables, but, but isn't it sort of a cryptic kind of a form to be teaching in? Why use parables? We'll hear Jesus answer that question shortly. The second word to take note here, very carefully, let's think this through this together, in verse 10 is the word them. So in asking Jesus here, why do you speak to them in parables, the disciples, what are they doing? They're automatically, notice, they're automatically making a distinction between themselves and them, right? Them is a group out there who is other than the disciples. And as it's going to turn out in this passage, Jesus will only confirm this dichotomy. Jesus will speak to the disciples, to his followers, as you, when he addresses them, and he will refer to this other group as them, they. So we have this consistent dichotomy throughout the passage of two distinct groups. As to the identity, the precise identity of the them group, it's debated, but it's perhaps simplest to say that they were those in the crowd whose hearts were not yet set on the true worship of the true God. Oh, they worship something. Because every single human being worships something. But what they worship was not the true God who had revealed himself fully in Jesus. They were not his disciples. Jesus begins to answer the question posed by the disciples in verse 11. Notice the you and them language that Jesus uses here. He says, to you, who's he speaking to? The disciples. To you, my disciples, my followers who have embraced the kingdom, to you it has been, notice the word, given, given, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. You and them. And immediately here we also notice that word, hopefully you notice that that word given, that appears twice in conjunction with both the disciples and them. The followers of Jesus, the disciples, to them it had been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but this same knowledge had not been given to them. Now the question that pops up in the text here is this question, who is doing the giving and the not giving here? Who is doing the giving and the not giving here? What's the answer? Shout it out. God. God is doing the giving. God is doing the not giving. My friends, listen as we can contemplate this text. I want you to, to realize this. Our brains, our abilities, natural abilities, our smarts, our insights, our estimations, 
are simply not sufficient on their own to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You see, as fallen people, we are career idolaters. And as career idolaters, before the point that God steps into our lives, we are dull. Amen? I hope you realize that. We are unable to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven unless God steps in. God himself must supply that knowledge. He must give that knowledge. Are you with me? And God must also give us the receptivity to that knowledge. God must turn on the lights, so to speak, by his Holy Spirit. God must make the deaf spiritual ears that we have chosen for ourselves to hear, and he must make the blind spiritual eyes that we have chosen for ourselves because our hearts love darkness, Jesus says. He must make the blind spiritual eyes to see. To you, followers of Jesus, has been given, listen, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Are you a believer this morning? To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The word secrets, as it appears in our English text, this this is the Greek word musterion, from which we get the word mystery or mysteries. The word in Greek has to do with things that we as human beings could never figure out, could never work out or see for ourselves. God must reveal them. He must make them known. He must unveil them. Mysteries. The mysteries or the secrets of the kingdom that God had revealed to the disciples centered on the person of Jesus. Yes? Centered on the person of Jesus. The mystery centered on the fact that contrary to Jewish expectation, God's rulership, God's kingdom had broken into the middle of history in the person and the work of the Messiah Jesus. In the middle of history and not at the end of history as it had been expected. Blessedly, The disciples were people who recognized Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. They recognized him. The disciples followed him as Lord. They saw, however blurry it must have been to them at the time, they saw that all of those stories and all of those promises in their Hebrew Bible, in their Old Testament, somehow they landed on Jesus and they were being fulfilled in Jesus. And who had given them this blessed insight? Who had turned the lights on for them? God had. But to this other group, them, the people out in the crowd whose hearts were still enamored with the idols that they had chosen for themselves, God had not given this knowledge. Verse 12, Jesus continues, 
For to the one who has, that is, to people like you, disciples, to people who receive from God the knowledge of the kingdom, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, that is, from the one whose spiritual pockets are empty, to the one still enamored with his or her idols, even what he has, notice the language here, Jesus has just said that this person has nothing, right? Even what he has, which is nothingness, even that will be taken away. So the picture is that he or she will end up having less than nothing in the spiritual sense. Less than nothing. And then verses 13 through 15, where now we get, I hope you notice, an explosion of references to seeing and hearing, to ears, eyes, seeing, hearing. And these three verses in their entirety, we need to notice, in their entirety are about the spiritual seeing and the hearing of the them group. These three verses are a description of the spiritual seeing and hearing of those who are outside the ranks of Jesus' disciples. Jesus says... Disciples, you had asked why I speak to them in parables. Well, this is why I speak to them in parables. Notice what he says. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then, lo and behold, guess what? In verses 14 and 15, Jesus quotes from that passage in Isaiah 6 that we discussed earlier. He brings in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, indeed, in their case, them, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. That says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never understand. Perceive, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, I hope you're staying with me. There's, there's a whole bunch that can be said about these three verses. And the first basic thing to see is that undoubtedly here, Jesus is aligning or he is associating his ministry with the ministry of Isaiah. So just as Isaiah in his day had been sent to prophesy to an idolatrous people, whose spiritual hearing and sight had come to resemble their deaf and blind idols. Now, hundreds of years after Isaiah, Jesus had been sent to prophesy in the midst of an idolatrous people whose spiritual hearing and sight were likewise defective. And in fact, friends, isn't it true, this is the case in every generation of human beings, including our own. 
there will always be this group of people who are spiritually deaf and blind. In fact, Jesus says in verse 14 that in the case of his contemporaries, listen to the language he uses, they fulfilled, fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy concerning spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness, which means that these people were willfully rejecting the Christ whom God had sent. These people were spurning God's greatest revelation, who was Jesus, the light of the world. They were rejecting the God-man who was standing there and healing there and teaching there in their midst. Choosing instead to remain in the darkness of their idolatry with their moldy scraps of spiritual bread. And because of that, Jesus will do the same thing that Isaiah had done. The parables of Jesus for the them group will be a form of judgment on them. Because of their willful rejection, listen, their willful rejection of God's Christ, because of their chosen opposition to God, because of their ongoing allegiance to idols, the full spiritual significance and the full weight of Jesus' parables, parables, even as these people would hear them, would be lost on them. They will hear, but not hear. They will see, but not see. They will not understand the full, glorious, spiritual meaning of the parables, nor will they be able to appropriate the truth. To borrow Augustine's image here, the situation would sort of be like me looking at Arabic script. If I look at Arabic script or some other alphabet that I don't know, I can see the marks on the page all right, but I can't understand the meaning. I can hear Joshua or Majid speak Farsi, but I can't hear the meaning. I wish I could, but I can't. Hearing, but not hearing. Seeing, but not seeing. Now notice, friends, notice in verse 13. Let's, let's look at this even more intensely here. Notice that Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because, notice the word, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Notice that word, because. Now, one way to interpret the thought here would be to say this. Oh, Jesus speaks parables to these people because... They have spiritual sight problems and spiritual hearing problems. And he wants them to understand his message. He wants to overcome the spiritual sight problems and the hearing problems. And so he uses parables because parables will help them understand. That would be one way to interpret this, but there are very good reasons not to interpret it that way. And perhaps the best reason not to interpret it that way is how the gospel writer Mark writes the same sentence over in Mark 4, verses 11 and 12. 
In Mark 4, Jesus says, listen to the difference. For those outside, everything is in parables. So that, purpose, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand. Jesus says that everything is in parables so that this idolatrous group will not perceive or understand. And Luke 8 verse 10 has Jesus saying the same thing that he says in Mark. Jesus, is, Jesus speaks his parables so that they might not see and understand. So for that reason, amongst others, involving the Greek syntax of Matthew that I'm not going to get into here, I think it's best if we take the word because in Matthew 13, 13 in this sense. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. That is because of this people's willful rejection of God in Christ. Because of their chosen spiritual hardness, chosen spiritual hardness, since they are this way, they get parables, which for them is a form of judgment on their idolatry. In their idolatrous condition, they will be like their idols. They will hear the parables but never understand. They will see but never perceive. Which is not to say, listen carefully, it's not to say that many in this them crowd were altogether beyond redemption. It's not to say that. After all, hadn't the disciples themselves once been in the them crowd, right? Before they put their faith in Jesus Christ and followed him, indeed. And so yes, there will still be those in the them crowd who will stay that way, but there will be others who God could redeem and bring to repentance and turn the lights on and have them denounce their idols should God wish to do so. But for now, these people in the them crowd were choosing to reject Jesus. Choosing to reject Jesus. Choosing to serve their idols. And so they got parables through which they would see but not see, hear but not hear. The full, blessed, spiritual significance of the parables of Jesus would escape them. Finally then, in verses 16 and 17, Jesus turns his attention away from the them to the you. In other words, he puts the focus again on his disciples, on his followers, on those who had embraced him and embraced his kingdom. Have you embraced the kingdom this morning of Jesus Christ and do you know him as Lord and Savior and King? He turns his attention to the you. He pronounces blessing on his disciples. Jesus says to his disciples, notice, but blessed are your eyes. Believer, your eyes are blessed. For they see and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, my disciples, listen to what he says, Many prophets and righteous people. Who's he talking about? Old Testament people. Many prophets and righteous people longed 
They yearned to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is saying here to his disciples, remember the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, like Amos, like Jeremiah, Moses, others? Remember Abraham and David and others? They lived way before my appearance on the earth. And they longed in their day to see this kingdom, this rule of God on the earth that you are seeing and you are hearing in me. Recognize, disciples, that you are so remarkably blessed with this privilege of having God open your spiritual eyes to see and open your spiritual ears to hear and perceive the mysteries of the kingdom now that are being unveiled in me. Now, friends, having journeyed through this hard passage together, I want to borrow a picture from Bible scholar Walter Kaiser. Say I poured a concrete sidewalk two weeks ago. The concrete is now hard, right, two weeks after I poured it. But every time the sun comes up and shines down on my concrete, what happens? The sun just increases the hardness of the concrete, right? Now, at the very same time that the sun is shining down on my concrete, hardening the concrete, the same sun, the same sun is also shining down with its 35 degree Celsius heat on a candle that I left out in the yard. The same sun that is hardening the concrete is softening the wax of the candle. According to Jesus, who aligns himself with Isaiah, his parables are sort of like the sun. The disciples are like the candle that is exposed to the sun being softened and being molded spiritually, hearing, seeing, perceiving. But the other crowd, the them, that we've talked about this morning, is like the concrete. Exposed to the same sun, exposed to the same parables, they are only becoming more confirmed in their spiritual hardness. The Word of God is putting the question to each and every one of us this morning. Are you a you a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, one who has taken him and received him as Lord and Savior of your life, you've thrown yourself upon him. Are you a you or are you them? Right now, are you a you or are you a them? Examine yourself. Does God's breath God's word, including the parables of Jesus, does it have a melting effect on you? Shows you your brokenness? Rearranges you? 
molds you, softens you, humbles you? Is it a joy to you? As God reveals himself to you and he, as he reveals you to you? Or is there a hardness, defensiveness, a recalcitrance, a shrug of your spiritual shoulders when you're exposed to the word of God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And if your honest answer this morning, your honest answer is that you find yourself in the latter group, in the dulled out group, the hardening concrete group, and that fact bothers you, it really unsettles you to be in the hardened spiritual condition that you are, I want to tell you that that very unsettled feeling that you are experiencing may indeed be a good sign that God is drawing you to himself. Examine yourself. It may be that God is making you restless, that God is making you uncomfortable as he leads you to trust his son, Jesus Christ, the king of the universe. So then, my friend, will you turn to Jesus and will you receive him? Will you trust his shed blood on the cross as the only way? I know it's very politically incorrect. The only way for you to be forgiven your sin against God. I say it all the time. That's your biggest problem. You need to be forgiven of your sin against God and the only way that will happen is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so will you empty your hands and receive from God eternal and abundant life? Will you stop running and fall with the whole of you into the almighty embrace of the one who loved you so much that he substituted himself to die on your behalf? when you deserve that death penalty for your sin and your idolatry? Will you trust Jesus today? Will you take on his colors, you chameleon? His robe of righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working mightily right now to bring a lost person home to you, that they would receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this very day. There is nothing more important. Father, so work on hearts that you would help each and every one of us, even if we've been believers for a long time, to smell idols and turn from them and do a 190 away from idols. The idols are like, they're coming at us like a tidal wave in this culture. Father, help us to be worshipers of you in spirit and in truth for seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. I pray in Jesus' name.